uh, okay, the basket goes, the money will go to Lutheran Church Charities. I didn't even know that Steve Chester and Marty Johnson are down helping with still storm damage in Alabama, so we're um, sending money in that direction. Is that correct? Thank you very much. I, I mean, those guys, you can't keep up with them, so that was very nice. Yeah. All right, fantastic. So if you got an extra dollar or two, I'll, send the, I'll put this right here with the Kovics. They can be trusted to mark their name and pass it around. Uh, but first, let's pray. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Epiphany 4, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, Romans 8:19. Almighty God, who set your Son over the works of your hands so that even the winds and the sea obey him, we pray, give power to your word that your kingdom may grow and increase throughout all your creation and that we might be delivered into the glorious freedom as your children. Through Christ our Lord, amen. All right, questions about anything? No? Okay, so uh, you got, has everybody got a handout? We okay? Okay, here we go. Let's play. Now, you who have seen this, um, you who have been, had kids in confirmation, you've seen this before. And if, it gets, if this goes badly, Mary Caesar, it'll be the end of me. So, okay, here you go. This is just like any children's sermon, okay? Okay, who am I? What am I? Jesus. That's right. Every, the right answer for everything is Jesus, okay? <laughs> That is, in fact, the right answer. Now, in context, who am I, what am I, if I'm Jesus, who am I, what am I, and why is this today? I'm dead. Thank you very much. That's very kind. What else? Through a veil dimly. Not quite right, but, um, but possible. What else? You can't see me. Here's, my, here's your second clue right here. Oh, there you go. Which shroud? Uh, wouldn't quite be a bruzek, but it could be. And this goes here, right? One of the reasons you know there was a resurrection is that Jesus cleaned up his room. You remember this. In the Gospel of John, he folded up his, um, he folded up his linens. So that kind of puts the grave robber uh, idea to shame. There's no grave robber who sort of cleans up after himself. Um, really interesting thing. You can believe in the Shroud of Turin or not. Up to you. Um, but the Shroud of Turin looks you know, something like this. It's a bit longer, and it has this image that people have been puzzling over. Uh, you know, and it's, is it 14th century? I'm trying to remember now. So that's the long piece. Um, the short piece, so that's the long piece said to be Jesus' burial cloth. The short piece was checked into a library, I think in the 600s. The cool thing about librarians is they're meticulous. So they have this face cloth. You remember they buried in two parts. Um, there was a body cloth and then a face cloth. And if you read John's account of the gospel, when they peek in, they say, there's nobody here, but the body cloth and the face cloth are folded up and put neatly away. Mary taught Jesus to clean up his room before he left. So then um, there is a tradition in the church uh, that in about 600, the face cloth was put into a library in Spain. It was brought from wherever it was in the Middle East and brought to a library in Spain. And then later comes the Shroud of Turin uh, that is said to be the burial cloth of Jesus that appears, and it has a long convoluted route, but it appears in Turin. Um, I think it's 1400, but I have to try to, I should have looked that up. So anyway, you can believe that or not. The coolest thing is there are bloodstains on this one from the 1400s and bloodstains on this one from the 1600s. So if only you could DNA and see whether or not the bloodstains match. That would be very interesting. But, you know, whether you could ever get close enough to either of them to do that remains to be seen. The stakes would be very high, um, uh, interestingly. 
If they matched, it would be tremendous, uh, tremendously interesting. wouldn't necessarily prove anything, but it would prove that they're from the same person. That would be tremendously interesting. If they didn't match, then one or the other or both might be, you know, a little nerve-wracking. But um, in, of course he does. He's fully human. <laughs> Don't make me come back there with my sticks and my pile of wood. <laughs> uh, he's got, if you have DNA, Jesus has DNA. Um, so anyway, now here's the whole point, of course. We've been, and, and our, our language is fluid in the course of the architecture of the building. So you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, we actually talked about this in Elders for a couple of times, and then we got um, distracted by other things. It's been years ago now we talked about it. You, it's very funny how the kind of the staff and the elders work. We talk about things for years. For you, they may seem like they happen automatically, Things we, we talk about things for years in staff and elders. We talked four years about before we, we decide, we, before we started consuming all the elements. That was a four-year conversation. One of the things that the pastors said to the elders is um, we wanted to kiss the altar. And then uh, we talked about that, and then I, don't, I can't remember where it got left off. We got, but part of the reason for that is very traditional. It's not, an, it's not a big deal. If you go to any Catholic mass that has a higher sensibility, um, You'll see the priest come in, and he, he kisses the altar. He, he greets the altar with a kiss. Uh, why does he do that? Because it's Jesus, right. In the Middle East or in Europe, in every other culture, you know, um, do, you have, do you have European relatives? Do you have Middle Eastern relatives? You remember the story of Judas? How do you greet people when you see them? Not a handshake. A kiss, yes. And so if you think that the altar is Jesus, you kiss him. Good morning. It's great to see you again. I love you, Right? Um, so it's very common. You can watch the next time you go. Maybe the next time you go someplace that's, you know, not St. John and is maybe, and, and they're doing actually the liturgy, you'll watch for things like that. You'll see the priest on his first approach will, will kiss the altar. It's very, and everybody does it, and it's the most common thing. It's like saying, good morning, why do you do that? Because there is the sense that the altar is Jesus. Now, we back into that as Lutherans. You know, if I say that to you, that makes you often nervous, or maybe not you because we've all been together so long, but it often makes people nervous until they realize that they've been saying that forever and ever, amen. And the, the answer to, you know, we may, not kiss the, we may not kiss the altar, we may say, gosh, it makes us nervous to you know, talk about the altar as Jesus, but once a year, every Lutheran who does the book confesses that the altar is Jesus at the Stripping of the altar. I mean, the reason you strip the altar is you're stripping Jesus to get him to be ready to be crucified naked. And then some of you, uh, some of you have maybe been in churches where you've even the ladies have come out and washed the altar. Why do they wash the altar? They're washing the body exactly to prepare the body for burial. That's what's going on there. It's not just some piety of, hey, this isn't quite as a fancy a day as the other days. This is, Jesus is the altar, Jesus gets dressed. And then before Jesus gets crucified, Jesus gets stripped naked. And then before Jesus dies, he gets washed up. I mean, we do things, um, and it's fine, because actually... It's okay to do things that you don't know what they are and kind of grow into them. We have your kids are doing all kinds of things. In fact, there were reports today after the service that there was some gang of kids, you know who you are, 
who were playing in the font, dribbling water, and even drinking. It's the first report of drinking from the font. <laughs> Although I will say, congratulations, there was about a month where every week we were finding change in the font. <laughs> this is actually true. We had three or four weeks where somebody, and then it stopped miraculously, so God bless you for realizing that it wasn't a wishing well. But every week, John Crow was in there trying to fish pennies out of the bottom of the font. We're like, who are these people and where do they come from, you know? So I, everything means things, you know, and you, you start to learn what they mean and you get better at it. Um, but, but real honestly, the church has from forever considered the altar to be Jesus. Go ahead. Question? Did you have a question? Or no? No, I thought it was you. I'm sorry. My mistake. So, um, you know, it is what it is. Now, part of the reason um, you know that is, and so I had the mosaic up. You remember the mosaic was an attempt to um, look at it. Uh, the, the hammering, so you have this very modern technological boom, 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 industrial hammering to make, so that makes the, we're an industrial, post-industrial, post-modern age, although manufacturing apparently is coming back to the United States, so we're hipper than we even thought we were. And you get this image of, so look at this image, how this looks, and you're farther back, but if you're close... You can just see how these, no two are the same, and they're all different, yet they're all put together. Last time I was at St. Mark's in Venice, I, I bought a couple of icons, and because I was buying a couple of icons, the guy gave me some, he chatted, chatted around. I said, it took me like 60 seconds to figure out this is a very bright guy, because he was showing me things in the icons that I didn't know, and he's like, have you looked at this, and did you see this? I'm like, I said, how do you know all this? He said... Well, my day job is I work in the bookstore, and it's just, you know, it's their best, it's trinkets and trash. There's other stuff, but, I mean, they're selling you postcards and maps and all this stuff. I said, how do you know all this? He said, well, my day job is I work here in this little stall. But he said, every day after work, I go in. He said, in St. Mark's, the entire building is like this. I mean, from the floor, up the wall, over the ceiling, and back down. The entire thing, and it's probably 20 times bigger than what we have it's, you know, stories high and ancient. It's all built like this. And he said, every day after work, I go and I follow the guy whose job it is to replace these little mosaics that fall out, these little tiles. And he said, I said, you know, is there any guarantee? He said, there's no guarantee. But he said, I think he'll last another 10 or 11 years. And then he said, and then I hope the job is mine. So here's this guy. He's following a guy around. You know, he's, he's content to work in a bookstall you know, making nothing. I mean, of course, the compensation is you're in St. Mark's every day. However, you know, he's content to work in this stall for 10 or 15 or 20 years on the hope that he'll be the next guy because the guy will drop dead. It's going to be it's a little like Crow. When Crow drops dead, what are we going to do? None of you have any idea what Crow does. I mean, this is just an example. So the thing is, is, you know, I mean, if Crow dropped dead today, the whole place would shut down for about two years because we have no idea. We've given him four jobs. We have no idea what he's doing or how they intersect. You know, we can't even get the doors locked without him. But no, we think it's all going to be okay. Well, it's not. So the thing is, is this guy, when he drops dead, the next guy will say, hey, I know where that, I, this, I, that one goes right there. That's what he'll say, right? So this is this great ancient thing. So click me to the next one, John. See, we, I can't even do this myself. Oh, there's another one. You see how it's all put together. Jesus, sort of the classic, you know, Western, Eastern. Two, two letters from Jesus' name, K-er, or K-er-i, Christ, right? So he's putting his name on you. You know, West, East, a little more ancient, a little more modern. 
doesn't matter, have it how you want. But there he is, blessing you, right? Putting his name on you, puts his name on you, he owns you. And you'll notice, I mean, I mean, as long as we're here, we might as well look at this. The, the symbol of eternity, the nimbus, the glowing nimbus, the circle around his head. Jesus gets it. Saints get it. Um, you can tell who's who in a mosaic or a painting by who's got one. And then, obviously, they, they were clever enough to turn the thing into the sign of the cross, right? So, um, I was curious about something. Um, not so much in that one, but here is one thing I learned at St. Mark's. Now I have an icon I'll show you, this classic icon from Sina. You know how Lutherans say, you know, there's law and gospel, and they've got to be precisely delivered, and you've got to separate them all the time. And then what, I, what is the most helpful thing, in which I sometimes get pushback from other pastors and academics, although it is the most helpful thing, that every word can be said two ways, a law way and a gospel way. So the Eucharist can save you or it can kill you, Jesus will come and judge you righteous, or he'll judge you guilty. The same thing works two ways. Did you know, in icons, it's not so prominent in this one, although it's partially there. In icons, Jesus often has a law eye and a gospel eye. So look, here's his... I wish I had something bigger. Bible always works. Here's his more angry eye, although it's usually more pronounced. This one isn't squinted enough, but oftentimes you get this, this eye that is like your mother looking at you when you just ate you know, what was supposed to be for dessert tonight. <laughs> and then you have this more wide open, round, soft, calm, blessing, gospel eye. Test it yourself. You'll see it all. This is not a prominent one. Um, and usually the icon I have is from the East. The Eastern icons, we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. The Eastern icons are more vivid and more contrast, and sometimes more harsh. Um, this is, uh, although this is Istanbul, but, um, well, we'll have to go there someday and look. So anyway, um, uh, it is one, the one, one place I haven't been where I'd really like to go is Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, which was said to be the greatest, um, the greatest of all churches ever built, which is now, it's kept as a museum, thank God. It's not wholly defiled, uh, but it is um, not used for worship, uh, neither by Muslims or by Christians. But there are places where they've whitewashed over these. But last time I talked to somebody who was there, they said they don't have the money to keep up the whitewash. So if you look clear up in the dome, the whitewash has begun to peel off, and you can see Jesus' face kind of peeking through. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So someday, you know, we got to go. All right, so let's go to the next one. So we were trying to pick up this. Oh, there's the, and you can see, now you can imagine how big that is if there's just peace, 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 right? Um, and that is a magnificent thing. I mean, this is when people, you know, so here you say Hagios Paulus, St. Paul, you know, St. Peter. Um, you know, just the, we could spend a whole, I mean, just that would be, that would be the rest of our time together for the rest of our lives. Um, you know, John and Mary and Christ and, Pomegranates means things are coming back to life, and doves mean calm things, and then um, Alpha and Omega with Cairo, Christ is the Alpha and Omega. I mean, this is just like reading a book here. You know, this is just the whole story of. Well, anyway, we wanted to get, we wanted to catch some of that. Keep going. When we pounded out the front of the, when we pounded out the front of the thing, so we wanted to get this ancient, postmodern feel going. At the same time, we had this very tight budget. How do you do that? And so that's um, that's where we came to. Now, go to the next one, please. There we go. So, 
the question was, how do we, how do, we do this? Um, with an altar, there's a couple things you always do. Now, as soon as I say you always do them, you'll ha- say the altar in my home church didn't have this, and then I'll just I'll say to you, that's okay, but secretly I think you poor, impoverished child. That's all secret. But I won't say that to you out loud. But there are some things that always happen with an altar. One thing is, the altar top, the mensa, the altar top is always a single piece of stone. It's always one piece because... The church is one. The church is unbroken. And so the altar is Christ, and you are the body of Christ. So in some sense, you're the altar too, or this is Christ's church. You see how all these images flash together? So the altar is Jesus, but you are Jesus, and Jesus is the altar, and you're the body of Christ. The point of all that is, is you are meant to be, the church is meant to be, just like we say every, every week, one holy Catholic apostolic church, one you know, despite our divisions are an embarrassment and a sin. And we're working at it, but our divisions are an embarrassment and a sin. We're working at it. And we're human beings, and, you know, um, things don't happen as fast as we hope they'd happen. But at least we can hold up what the ideal is, or frankly, what the truth is. So when you build an altar that is Christ, is the altar, is you, is church, the top is one unbroken piece. If it breaks, you get a new one. Okay, so now fast forward. Um, Bruce Klein, who was, you know, Bruce was invaluable in all this, and, you know, whenever you see him, you should say to him, thanks very much for helping us out. Bruce did so many things, and you know, uh, beyond the call of duty and so many helpful things. You know, he would call us up and say, you know, hey, let's go look at stone, like that, you know. So we'd go into these big warehouses, and there were several places we did, and they had these huge sheets of stone. And it's it's like, uh, have you ever remodeled your kitchen with your wife? Oh, I see. You need therapy for that. Okay, I get it. Uh, you know, it, it, there's so much. You know, it's like you know, you got to, you have to get it. So how do you do that? Well, so we were trying to. There were some things we didn't want to do. The stone on the top is meant to be unique. You don't put it the same stone on the top that you'd put on the floor. You'd never put it underfoot, right? It's different. It's Christ. It's the church. It's one. Um, so, and we had to think about colors and how all these things are doing and cost and da 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 da. And if you have, you normally sort of buy the best stone you can, and you get, you know, marble is sort of the top end. It's extraordinarily expensive. You know, granite sort of falls down. You have to think about where. You have to think about all these things. One of the things you want to do is always, as you see here, you always cut five crosses in the top of the altar. Why do you do that? For the five wounds of Christ. One, two, three, four, five, right? You always cut five crosses in the top, so you have one unbroken piece, and... um, then you always cut the five wounds into it. So we were looking all around. We finally settled on this, given the color of the altar, the color scheme. And it's this, you know, sometime, I mean, the benefit of being in the altar guild or, is that you get to go up and look at this. It looks like a Van Gogh painting. It's this unbelievably swirly, bright things, and they're silver, and it's dark, and it pulls back, and the lights come down, and it's gorgeous. And then I said, you know, um, well, are you going to be okay cutting the crosses? And they're, oh, yeah, no trouble. So, and then the, the stone guy said, well, you know, it's got a lot of mica, all that silver. And he said, sometimes when people have cut that, um, you know, that, that pops and you don't get a clean edge. I'm like, oh, I want a clean edge on the thing. And then, of course, 
what do, what do like tradesmen, stone worker, immigrant guys do when one guy says, oh, you probably should be careful, that, that might pop? What do they say? Yeah, I'll do it, you girly man, you big sissy, I'll take care of it, okay? So this is actually true. I could translate it for you out of Romanian, but you get the picture. <laughs> so they're all standing around telling each other, you're a wuss, I you know, can do this. Okay, so then what happens is we buy it, you know. So now you've bought it, and it's your piece, and it's there, and it's cut. And they start cutting the square edge. And then what happens? And then by the time we got to the crosses, they're all like, Ugh, uh, you, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? So, I mean, this is the sort of stuff we're up. We're, we get this date coming, and they've all, like, they've all been calling each other sissies for a year. And then when it comes time to cut, everybody takes a big step back. So this was the coolest thing. Um, we actually went to the people who do the tombstones down at the bottom of the hill. And uh, tombstones are often very expensive, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 if you put a big one up. And this was the coolest thing. So this guy comes, and he, um, John, help me out. Was this latex around here? Did he put a latex film around the outside? And then he scored it, and then he used air. And he just, like, hit it, like, tsh-tsh. I mean, for any of you who are mechanical, this was very cool, right? And he just blew it, he just blew off the top thing, and it was perfect. We're like, way to go, tombstone guy. That was really good. Uh, but, you know, it was, we were, you know, for a moment there, we thought we had, well, we have this beautiful piece of stone, and now everybody steps away, and they're not going to cut it. So we were very nervous for a little bit, and kind of go with the next one, see what the next one's. I think it's a little closer. And that was, uh, Martha, I was away at the day that he cut it, and she, she sent me this photo. Um, and you can see then, you normally have four, often you have four smaller and one bigger, actually just to kind of hold the stone. And um, there's one little piece right there that didn't come out. And he, he sort of said, I can't get that out with what I've got today. But don't, don't worry, you'll be able to get somebody to just kind of knock that out. We just haven't found anybody who wants to give a <laughs> hammer and chisel to that. So we'll probably just take it, you know, the way it is. Um, but any time, if you would see the altar stripped naked, you would see naked Jesus, five wounds of Christ. Now, that's what you're supposed to be thinking of. And you, then when you see this stuff, of course, Jesus wore all kinds of different things, but what you should see then is Jesus sort of dressed for death and life. Okay, that's what you're supposed to see. Um, give me the next one, John. I'm not sure exactly what's there. No. They chipped along the edges, and they figured it out. And um, a square cut was, you know, they, they, it's very finely done around the outside. It didn't break, but it made the initial guys so nervous they didn't want to do the delicate, I'm going to cut the crosses in now. So we really were kind of up a creek because we bought it, paid for it, had it cut, and then people stepped away. Oh, confession is good for the soul. <laughs> Those were the experiments. So the piece that we had, you know, it's five by five, but the piece that we had was much bigger. It was probably eight by seven, and it's cool to watch these guys. I mean, these guys are really old school. You know, English was not their first language. The stone guys were so, they're so remarkable. Um, So what they did is they looked all over for the best five by five chunk, and then they used the other pieces, and they practiced, and that's probably what you have. So God bless you for having it. That's fun that you have it. Yeah, good. That's great. You can... um, it's just another stone until it becomes, you know, I came in, I was in one day standing on the altar, and Carol Holter caught me. 
And then I thought, well, that will you know, ruin her faith and be the end of me. But I did, I did tell her that it had not been, yet been. Do you remember this? We were still. That's true, that's true. But it, was, it had not yet been consecrated. So it, we were careful, but um, not superstitious about it. David. Yeah, it is quite remarkable. Now, this one is called November Sky. What was cool was this underneath, you'll see a round circle. Um, when you, next time you go by, look up. Underneath um, the stone that was selected there was called Cosmic Abyss. Isn't that great? That's like, you know, you have this, so you have this bubbling tohu, wabohu, everything is mixed up. And then Jesus comes, and he gives order to that. And the ultimate order in life is Jesus on the cross. It just worked out that way. But it was like, we're like, hey, that, that, I think that'll work. What is that? That's Cosmic Abyss. We're like, yeah, that's the one. Cosmic Abyss. <laughs> so... Um, there you go. Uh, John, click ahead one or two more. Let me see what's happening. Oh, the altar platform. Okay, I got to, uh, let's see, what am I going to do here? Yep, keep going. Uh, go ahead. Let's just think, let's talk about, we'll come back to the platform in a moment. Uh, so this is cosmic abyss right here. So, you know, you step into that and everything is tohu wabohu. That's Genesis 1-3, formless and void. You know, everything's just sort of swirling. And you sort of get that sense. You put Jesus there. Everything comes to order. His gifts are given here. We're going to come back and do, do more with the icon because uh, that's quite a, a thing. But two things, proximity and body on a cross. Um, first, proximity. This, what we wanted to do was to help you understand that what hangs on the cross here lies on the altar here anytime there is a Eucharist. Okay? So there was this thing about, originally we started with um, the cross way high. That was the, the very first rendering. We thought immediately that was like, that doesn't work because there's too much separation. So there was all this. And of course we're talking to the guys, Rich Red and Marty and Dave Moom and all these guys who are, you know, these guys, and you got, we got this thing delivered, and now how are we going to hang it? And, you know, we're saying to him, like, can you, can you hear this? A little to the left. Can you hear that? Up a little high. Of course, they're on a scaffold trying to, you know, they're all hanging upside down, and we're going, well, you could you just, just a little bit. So anyway, they, those guys were genius. They did a great job. We were aiming at eight feet uh, above the altar, because um, one is, that's about right. What we wanted was, at the elevation, so I'm six feet tall, so when I elevate the chalice is about seven feet. And what we wanted was not to bang the cross, but we wanted to be close enough to the cross that you would make the connection between the blood that was flowing out of the wounds of Jesus and the icon, the blood that's in the chalice, and then that that's going to be put back on the altar. Regularly, you'll see an artwork where, have you seen this, where the, from the, especially from the side of Jesus where the spear goes in, the blood shoots out and lands in a chalice? Have you ever seen this? There's often in artwork, there's, a, there's somebody, uh, an angel, you know, the lamb, Jesus the lamb, he's catching his little. It regularly happens that there's this connection between, in fact, I think even on Luther's altar in Wittenberg, I, I'd have to look at that again. Uh, but in any case, you regularly, you're supposed to make the connection. You're supposed to be able to see, this is Jesus with five wounds, he really, really bleeds, that blood comes to you in the verba, and he gives that to you to eat and to drink for your salvation, to forgive your sins, to build the community for all good things to send you back to Eden. So in thinking about this, those things were all supposed to be 
you know, together, you're supposed to have all of that in mind. Um, and to try to get that figured out and figure out where, you know, how high the light should be and, and you know, how, what distracts from what and what pulls and pushes. It was this glorious and terrifying thing because, you know, if we hang all the chandeliers wrong, you know, that's a bad thing because you have to, and we're all, it's all volunteers and you're calling them all back and say, uh, could you push that up six? I mean, it just is like, it came out, it was divine. I mean, the way things moved around and came out, it was just great blessing. So the point is, you can't take a look at this. So here's the cross and the crown of thorns right there. If you ever go by and look at the pillow, right on the top, Bev Hecht, 167,392 stitches. You could ask her. She'll tell you. Uh, all done by hand, you know. Uh, there, you know. There's the cross and the crown of thorns. You can't miss it here. There's not a body there just because it would have been too complicated and difficult and expensive. Um, next thing we have to talk about is body on the cross or off the cross. Um, then there is, if you look, there is a body on the cross right there. Why is that one there? That's for me. That's exactly right. Damn sinner. You can't have all the fun. So often, if you have the cash, um, you often have this glorious crucifix on the front, but hanging icons over an altar regularly have on the back as well a more modest but equally important image for anybody who sits behind. You know, we just didn't have the money to execute that. That's just impossible for, you know, what was happening. And I need the crucifix as much as you need the crucifix. There's a long-standing tradition in the church that you're looking at a crucifix, but also if the pastor is behind the altar, and you can do it in different ways, right? But if you if you're if you're at the altar, you need to see a crucifix. Period. If you're at the altar, you need to see a crucifix. If I'm at the altar, I need to see a crucifix. If you're working without a crucifix, you don't know what you're doing. At the altar, the primary thing that you're doing is bringing the body and blood of Jesus Christ to the altar. The same body and blood that hung on the cross. Now, just a little aside. In Wheaton, um, and in greater Reformed areas, you have this notion of a bodiless cross. Okay, so let me start by saying it's not wrong, but it is certainly not best. Okay? Crosses always had a body. They always, it was very rare, only in graffiti sometimes where people are cutting it in. You can look around. You can find examples. Certainly you can find examples. And frankly, before the Reformation, it's not as big a deal. Most crosses had a body. There were sometimes they didn't have a body or they were decorative, you know, like these. You know, obviously, you know, the crosses here don't have a body. That's, that's not my point. My point is the primary crosses always had a body. Um, and the body was always connected to the altar and the altar was always the place for the Lord's Supper. After the Reformation, when people wanted to deny that the body and blood was present on the altar, so that the body and blood is not there, that there isn't a sacrament, that Jesus doesn't come down from heaven and make himself present, that's when the bodies left the cross. So you spin forward 500 years, you come to Wheaton, when you move to Wheaton, everybody says, why is there no body on the cross? And then you get this very clever answer, because Jesus rose from the dead. To which, you know, Pastor Nelson, our former Baptist, he was, you knew this about him, everybody's got a history, said, uh, you know, au contraire. 
He said, the mark of the resurrection is not an empty cross. The mark of the resurrection is an empty tomb. Yes, right. So in our, I mean, things mean what, what they mean. They mean with the meaning you invest them in. An empty cross in American Protestantism is usually a denial that the body and blood is present on the altar in the chalice and on the paten. That's what it's for. You can make up any other story you want. That's the true story. That's the reason it's not there. And so Lutherans, like so many other things, Lutherans, like, like in so many other ways, you know, um, all the other things we've been talking about, that they sort of lost black robes rather than white robes, individual cups rather than a chalice. All that stuff is American Protestantism. You know, and it is a denial of what we believe. Now, you know, to sort of come to a place and then say, you really need to get bodies on your crosses, here's the thing, it's not a sin to have a cross without a body, but it comes very close to just two sticks being tied together. In our milieu, in another milieu, say before 1500, everybody would nod along and say that's artistic expression. After 1500, it became a theological comment it became commentary on what's happening. So the teaching was, he's not there. He's not there. That was the teaching. And so our rebellion against that, we're not Protestants. And God forbid, we're not mainline American Protestants. We're not. We're Lutherans. We've never said we were Protestants. That's what people have said about us. And Lutherans have always said, read the confessions. They said, we're not. We're not. They say, we're evangelicals. Evangelish was the initial, and Lutheran was a swear word. To say somebody you're a Lutheran was to kind of say your mother, you know. I mean, that's what you were saying. You were swearing at people when you called them a Lutheran. And then we've run you the quotes about Luther saying, hey, don't say that unless you mean, you know, that you confess the same Jesus I confess, and then I'll take it. So anyway, the point of this is, is you're making this confession with everything you do. The building wins. The building speaks. The building gives its gifts. And it's done with everything. So um, you uh, only would ever enter in, as it says in Joel, the priest approaches the altar with tears in his eyes, weeping and singing the psalms. So when do we go up? After we've confessed outside the rail. Now you're going to go into a holy place only after you have confessed as Peter geniusly sings, you know, a psalm, a curiae, an entrance, an introit. Here we go, the introit, the entrance. We're only going up there because we've been forgiven. Now it's safe. So once you've been forgiven here, now it's safe to go here. And we have this really difficult thing we're working with the kids where, you know, we want them to welcome it and not be afraid of it. We also want them to have reverence. In many church, for instance, in the Greek church, only priests and deacons can touch the altar and enter the space. Like there's no altar guild in the Orthodox church the priests and the deacons do it. No females are allowed inside at all, any time around. You know, obviously in the West with nuns and with, you know, and then more broadly with women who serve the church well, that happens. But you, you have to have this sense of you're going to another place when you go up there. Okay? So you get your sins forgiven. You move up as you sing the Psalms. You wouldn't sort of just run up there like, you know, you're all on your own. Um, you finally come to the holiest spot, which is where Christ puts his body and blood. You come before Christ with this mixture of awe, this is the creator of heaven and earth, and what a friend we have in Jesus. And you have to hold those two things together. It's like your really, really rich uncle. 
you know, he's your uncle and you want to love him, but, you know, he's done a lot of stuff and been a lot of places and, you know. So, you know, that time's a billion. So you come to this and here is Jesus. He's got clothes on because he dies and lives. Something for his body, something for his head. Um, he's on the cross and what he gives on the cross, he gives in the supper. And so we represent, Golgotha happens here, you know, Luther, I just, I'll push this all the way out now. Lutherans get very nervous about the notion of sacrifice of the mass. It's a kind of a code word like change. Um, you know, if you say too much about change, then people get all nervous because they immediately think transubstantiation. They have no idea that that was only one theory among a gazillion theories in the church. Um, and it, there's, it's just far more nuanced than that. And it didn't bother Luther that much. Read the Babylonian captivity from, you know, 1519. Transubstantiation doesn't really bother him much at all. Um, he just he's bothered that people think it's a good work of the priest. That's what really bothers him. But there is a sense that the Mass is a sacrifice in this sense, that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the one single sacrifice done one time for all. So am I hitting all your code words? That's what I'm trying to do. One sacrifice, one time, on a Friday afternoon, outside Jerusalem, one time, to which nothing can be added to, which is all-sufficient, what happens in the liturgy is that that sacrifice of Jesus is represented, re-put, comes alive, is there, is located, and that touches you. The same body and blood that was sacrificed touches you, and it's no different than Jesus touching the guy in the gospel for today, or when he put spit on the guy's eyes, or he forgave the woman, or cleansed the lepers. He touches you, and his holiness forgives you and changes you. And gives you a new life. That's what's happening. And so you have to be wary of all the code word stuff. You can't have a body on your cross. You can't say sacrifice. You can't say change. That's, that's simplistic, like third grade theology that you usually use to bash somebody over the head with. That's not what it's for. Lear, you know, this is all meant to teach. It's, and it's meant to open a conversation. And it's meant to show commonality. It's meant to give nuance. And it's meant to help you grow and think about things. Yes, please. The hearts on the candlesticks. Yes, the hearts on the candlesticks. You clever young woman, troublemaker, go ahead. What are you going to ask? <laughs> yes, you did. The sacred heart, yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Similar? Right, and so, as you know, we've got all those candles from a Catholic church that was going contemporary. Um, and I can't take full responsibility because the afternoon circle refinished them and put them into use. As you know, in the church, it's always important to have somebody to blame. So, uh, he's the most convenient one to blame. So they do, in fact, have three signs on them. One is the the pulsing, um, bleeding heart of Jesus, which I don't know about you, but I kind of like that heart, that warm, it's misericordia, it's the tender mercies of Jesus. You'll often see this Jesus, you know, picture of Jesus, and then you can just see right through to his heart, and his heart's often pierced, and it's pierced for you. It's the John. He, he pierced his heart, and out came blood and water. Out came Eucharist and baptism, Right? So that is on one side. Do you want to you just go for broke and just get it all out while you're here? What's on the other two sides? Do you remember? Mary, 
Mary's on one. So you got to decide if you like the little... I mean, Jesus liked his mother, so you should like her too. Uh, Mary's on one side. And then what's on the other side? Looks like a dollar bill. No, it's the... It's, a, it's, the, it's the triangle, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the word Yahweh, the holy name written across. So all three of those, we did, um, you know, we tried to be careful, but we absorb all three of those. We absorb the holy name, Yahweh, which you would, L-O-R-D in capitals, it's all over your Bible. Um, you know, Jesus loved Mary, Luther loved Mary. Luther was pastor, as you recall, of St. Mary's Church. He never changed the name, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, the, the, you can hate Mary if you want, but you're going to have a hard time getting into heaven. That's all I can say. Uh, because, I mean, when Jesus was picking of all the people in the whole world, he picked Mary. And if you don't like Mary, you've got, a, you're disagreeing with the Heavenly Father. I mean, so, I mean, and, and, uh. Yes, in the sacred heart of Jesus. So you got Jesus, Mary, and you got the Holy Trinity there, and those are all, you know, fine. There was a hand somewhere. Uh, just be careful, because I know you've, your group is sung at the Vatican, so just be careful here, okay? <laughs> Wasn't it your group? Oh, uh, well, everybody thinks it is now, so it won't make any difference. Chartres, that's right. Which was, in fact, built, as you know, to the Blessed Mother. Yes, right. Okay, go ahead. Yes, right. Yeah, your nervousness is whenever she gets in his way. But there's no place in the scripture where she ever gets in his way. So confess the Mary of scripture and you'll be fine. Right? I mean, seriously, she never gets in his way. It's, it's remarkable, but she's there, you know, certainly pulling her own weight. Wait, just question? <clears throat> right. How could she? Well, you might have a sacred heart, too, from what I know of you. Uh, well, so um, anything that would be of Mary is derivative of Christ. So I'm going to give you the same answer in a different way. If it's Jesus and then Mary, or then Jesus, then you, it's all okay. If it's Mary, then Jesus, you, then that's when you have an issue. Or you have this thing that pops up every once in a while, of G- Mary being co-redemptrix, that she and Jesus get it done together. Yeah, those are. But the thing is, is, Y'all don't get nervous when um, the people down the... I mean, I don't see you with, like, torches and pitforks making a run at the college because they deny that you get saved in baptism. So you just have to... I mean, the notion that we're going to throw out anything that anybody has corrupted, you know, misuse doesn't constitute disuse. So we just... So what we have to do is we have to relieve ourselves of our uber-sensitivities to things that we don't need to argue about. Most of those things... You learned so that you could tell the, your parents taught you that, or your pastor, so you could tell the difference between you and the Catholic kid down the street, right? Well, or I'm much more concerned about you and the evangelical kid down the street, who's utterly, I am, who's utterly non-sacramental, non-incarnational, non-hearted Jesus kind of Gnostic, you know, Da Vinci Code stuff. <laughs> I was just getting started. All right, so here's the thing. I mean, I didn't even look at the paper, but if you look at the paper. <laughs> okay, so we'll come back and look at the paper. You, here's the thing. You've got to know what you believe, why you believe it, and you've got to be able to rejoice in all the things. And then where things go badly, you've got this very crisp Lutheran way of knowing what goes badly, anything that infringes on Christ. If it infringes on Christ, you can't have it. If it extols Christ, you can have it. Everything we've done is meant to extol Christ, and it's all put together in a package to do that. Okay? Love you. Let's pray. 
Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Can I just say one other quick thing? Because I'm going to forget, because I didn't write it down. Uh, in the history of crosses, anybody want to go to Valpo? You go to Valpo, you got Jesus on the cross, who's all dressed up like a king. That's the other way of doing it. In the 20th century, that got a little bit of a bad rap. But pro- b- before, like, 1200, that was actually a very common image. And that's an okay image, too, if you know what you're doing with it. But the point is, whether you have a broken body on the cross or whether you have a kingly body on the cross, you've got a body. And everything can go wrong, but look at what's right and look what people intend. And so the other way, there was not a tradition of an empty cross. There was a tradition early on of a kingly Jesus, often in kingly robes, with a crown in the Valpo kind of way. You know, that's great. And there was this tradition as well. So I just wanted to preserve that for you because sometimes people argue about that too. I know that's a stunner for you in the church, but there you go. All right, love you.